I think you can define a before and after era. The before much music and what happened to the music scene after much music. It was like an earthquake. And launched in 1984, it was called Canada's Answer to MTV. And boy, did I spend hours of my childhood watching much music like so many other people. I mean, it launched music careers. It made celebrities out of its VJs. And now... Well, not so much. Now, Sarah Black McCullough is a writer from Toronto who has written about the history of much music. You can find that article in the latest edition of The Walrus. And Sarah joins us now. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, boy, your article sure brought back (laughs) a lot of memories for me. How big of a deal was it when much music launched? Just a bit. It completely changed the way... Um, I think so many people and especially Canadians interacted not only with music, but with the talent. And this was something that was pretty significant at the time. It was very normal um, from a lot of people that I interviewed to just have the members of Bon Jovi walking around Toronto and coming in studio or having someone um, as historic as Leonard Cohen popping into the studio to talk to anyone working there or anyone just passing by. Um, So I think it really brought Canada closer to the talent that we were producing, but also to international talent as well. It sure did. It kind of made headquarters, like music headquarters became that location on Queen Street West, didn't it? Absolutely. absolutely. I remember even just when I was younger, I grew up in Montreal, but, you know, just watching passersby and just the open environment of much music and how accessible even the VJs were to anybody walking by. So that was just so different at the time. And is that what made it, do you think, so unique and so revolutionary is that it changed how we interact with Canadian music? With Canadian music, but I'd even say the making of television. Um, When I spoke to Denise Donlan, one thing that she said that seemed to really resonate with a lot of viewers is that people could see how television was made, but also see the mistakes on air. And just as someone who wanted to break into journalism, it made that aspiration a lot more accessible to me too uh, that this was something that if you did work hard if you did put in quite a bit of research like someone George like George Shambalopoulos did uh, that it would take you somewhere and that it could make an impact um, and it could completely even change the meaning of a song to a large viewership for instance. Right, but you're so right about the lack of rehearsal it was just so <laughs> open right it just seems so much more Every day, more average than what we what we were used to seeing on TV at that point, which was polished and perfect. Polished, perfect, and scripted. I would say is uh, very different from what much music came from and started out from. And so, then, what happened to it over time? There was a confluence of, I would say, different factors. So, I think you know, I was used to reading a lot of you know just headlines that were like, "Who kills much music?" And a lot of the VJs I spoke to too just felt that you know they'd be walking outside and a lot of people would be screaming, "Hey, much music sucks! Can you do something about that?" So, you know, we saw a that lot. That would be awful, of just, by the way. That's <laughs> that would be, it was. It was. You know, it was awful. And and that you know that's sort of the other hand of what happens when you're accessible to fans as well. I would say. But it seemed to be a confluence of factors. The bigger thing is, you know, trying to keep the lights on. So making money and, you know, pleasing advertisers and, you know, keeping that revenue stream coming in. But a big problem and a big trend that I started to see towards the end um, and when a lot of decision making seemed to be straying really far away from the origins of niche music was media consolidation. So a lot of the times after... Uh, Chum had been bought by, you know, what what we now know as Bell Media now. 
um, a lot of decision making seemed to go from making it very raw, keeping it the way that, you know, much music intended to looking a lot like MTV. And I think something that a lot of people have commented about MTV is MTV almost spoke to the audience, not with the audience. And what was important to Much Music was to really engage and speak with the audience, to put them on an equal level with them. And that messaging seemed to get lost after Bell came in. All right. Is Much Music even around anymore? It is. Uh, it is. It is. Uh, it has been relaunched by Bell in 2021 as a digital content stream. So it, it was relaunched with TikTok. Uh, so you'll see it a lot more active on TikTok and on YouTube at the moment. Um, I'm not sure how many people are aware of that. But it is still out there and just in a different iteration at the moment. Yeah, see, I was not. I was not aware <laughs> of that. So you have to wonder then, what does that say about how we how we approach music and arts and culture yeah. these days in Canada? It's different. It's, it's interesting. I started this story four years ago, and this was during lockdown. This was at the beginning of lockdown. And something that had really taken off, especially with discovering music, was TikTok. So I I understand in a way the launch, the relaunch with TikTok, because that does seem to be a way that a lot of the younger generation is discovering music. Um, The thing that is missing, and this is something that came up a lot in my reporting, is that we're lacking quite a bit of context, right? So even if we hear a song in the background, we download it, we listen to it, it, we're not listening to it very long, not as long as we used to. And we don't have somebody unpacking the song or somebody with a taste level that we trust really getting closer to the person producing the music and the thinking behind it. So we're losing that connection to that storytelling element, that songwriting element that I think just really cements a connection to a song even more. Um, We've also lost the connection to the music video too, I would say. That's exactly what I was just about to say. Like what about (laughs) the music video element? I mean, that had to be in the eighties, the single most important ingredient for a hit song was what is the video like? And now people don't even know what the videos are for the song. And people would wait to tune in to catch that video and song, right? That was such a strong element of really drawing the audience in. And once they were pulled in, engaging them in a larger conversation. Um, So I think that that's what we're missing. I think, and this is not to, um, you know, speak very unkindly about the younger generation. I think they do want that context. We do see a lot of Gen Z's um, trying to unpack older songs, you know, even from my generation, music videos. And I I think there's a desire for that sort of context and that background. And and I I would see it coming back. It's just what is that going to look like today is the big question. Right. So if people want to see a video now, though, they have to go looking for it, don't they? Absolutely. Or they're creating a dance on TikTok to it. So they're creating their own music video in a way as well. Right. That is the new thing. I always have to remind myself yeah. that, is, that is the thing <laughs> that people thing. do now, right? Which is, I guess you say things change uh, and, mm-hmm. and that's, that's just how things evolve, Sarah. They do. And it's how we evolve and how we change our listening patterns as well. We turn to Spotify, you know, but around the time that much music was changing, iTunes had launched, YouTube had launched. So it's just about how do larger media conglomerates uh, adapt with the times and evolve. And, you know, instead of chasing an audience, how do they really bring it back in and, and keep them there? That's the big challenge, it seems. Right. Do you miss it? I do. I miss, you know, it, I still can see, you know, Nardwar and George Strombolopoulos. I do miss the other voices that used to be there. I, I missed, you know, having different perspectives on a song and a music video and different interpretations. I think that's really affected the way that I approach storytelling or media. It's just to consider all perspectives. 
So right. we're missing we're missing that quite a bit, I would say. I right lo- now, I love it. That's a d- 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 the generational difference between you yes. and myself because I'm Erica M. Christopher Ward, Denise Donlin era, yes. right? Yes. That's what I think yeah. of when I think of much music. And I, you know, I think too about, I think a big thing that a couple people brought up were the political figures coming on to really oh, yeah. speak to my generation. I remember Jack Layton coming on and, and that was very important to me as, as a, you know, a new voter, a very young voter at the time to have somebody really care about our perspective and what was going on in Canada at the time and to really speak to us and familiarize ourselves with the voting process, but also what decisions were they going to be making on our behalf and how they were considering us in it. So fascinating. Listen, thanks for sharing that with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. That's Sarah Black McCullough, who's a writer from Toronto. Her latest piece is in The Walrus, and it's about the history of much music. It was huge back in the day. And you know what? Reading all about it certainly made me very, very nostalgic. And you know, that's a good thing, too, considering we're talking about music and nostalgia and classic, classic bands.